people aren't disabled. It is society and the boundaries that we put up as far as society that disables a person. So no one inherently is, you know, disabled. And that just stands out a lot to me. So what barriers are we creating for others? Welcome to Freewheeling with Cardin. This podcast shares stories of people with various disabilities and shines a new light on accessibility topics. Our goal is to knock down barriers so we can roll through life a little easier and build a community to do this together. Please rate and follow this podcast or text Carden at 470-588-1215 with comments and suggestions. We welcome you on your journey towards inclusion for all. And now, your host, Carden Wyckoff global disability advocate, and wheelchair warrior. Welcome back to another episode of Free Wheeling with Cardin. I have Philip joining with me virtually. Hi, Philip. Welcome. Hi, Cardin. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to join you on your yeah. podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. And today we wanted to talk about a topic that was near and dear to your heart and also a topic that you work endlessly to help raise awareness for, and that's albinism. So talk to me about it. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I think it's one of those things that a lot of us who have different disabilities, we get pushed into becoming advocates for our own disability. So obviously, most people who see me know I have albinism right away. I'm an African-American with blonde hair, gray eyes, and pale skin. So mm-hmm. it's complicated. And who would have thought? Would I, does anyone ever say, is there any such thing? I didn't even know there was such thing as a black albino. Does anyone ever ask you that? It's usually the other way around. Okay. From my experience, a lot of people don't realize albinism, there's, you know, Caucasian people who have albinism or Asian people have mm-hmm. albinism or, you know, you fill in a blank. It's one of those things that impact right. people from all over the world. But at the same time, I it's kind of weird because I do say I'm lucky too because I'm a black guy who gets white privilege. So it kind of <laughs> out a little bit. Well, tell me a little bit about that. A, a black person who gets white privilege, how do you feel when that's happening to you? And can you kind of see both sides to that? That's a very interesting topic. A lot of times, early on, I really didn't notice. Um, but going back and thinking about my childhood, some of the conversations that even my mother had in front of me, maybe like when I was five or six, where random strangers would just tell like, you got to make sure you take really good care of that one, or you got to make sure that one is taken Mm -hmm. care of. I also relate a lot with Trevor Noah. He wrote a book about growing up colored. He's biracial in South Africa and how he was treated differently by his peers and other adults who ever saw him. And, you know, I just keep seeing instances like that happen. And even find out that some people who I knew on professional on a professional level, who didn't know I was black, had racist tendencies and they would say certain things around me. I was like, wow, should this be the time where I burst their bubble? Wow, that's pretty intense that you're kind of getting that. Do people assume that you're white? I would say it really depends on where I am. So in the U.S., I would say maybe 50, 60% of people just assume I'm white. Even more so now that I get mm-hmm. to cover up my nose and my lips. Yeah. <laughs> All you see is my eyes. <laughs> Hashtag Corona. Um, right. <laughs> but it, it really depends on the community. So within, you know, I do a lot of things in the low vision world because a lot of people with albinism have some varying degree of 
visual disability or issues related to it. So in that community, albinism is quite common. <laughs> Pretty much anyone mm-hmm. who knows any group or society, people who are blind or visually impaired, there's people of albinism always there and associated with it. Got it. And let's speak to a little bit more about like what is albinism for those who don't know. Describe some of those common characteristics and like you said, the visual impairments. Uh, That is a really good question. And the easiest way to talk about it, it's a person who typically has reduced pigment in the skin, hair, eyes, And I say reduced because it's varying degrees. There's a lot of different types of albinism. I have friends who, you know, they didn't get diagnosed until they were just entering elementary school. I have other friends um, who are average American who just always were referred to as being light skin, who had like sandy brown hair and more of an almond complexion. But no one just has never made the diagnosis. A typical way that an outside person can typically spot it is most people with albinism have some level of a visual deficit and is usually paired with nystagmus. So if you look in my eyes, you'll see I have pendular nystagmus, which just mm. means my eyes just shake left to right all the time for the most part. Okay. Does that affect you focusing on anything or is that just the, your, the way your eyes are moving always? It's the way that my eyes are moving pretty much always. Mm-hmm. I didn't know until someone told me and I tried to catch it in the mirror. When I try to catch it in the mirror, I can barely see it. <laughs> it gets worse when I'm tired. So Got a it. lot of my friends like, oh, your stagnus is just going crazy. Either you're stressed or tired. Oh, uh, okay. Well, that's kind of nice though. Yeah, that's kind of a telltale sign, right? For your friends to look out for if they see you're being you're really stressed or tired. That's kind of a telltale sign. Well, the other end of the spectrum is most people who have pendulostagmus, if you drink or have alcohol, it slows down, which I was okay. telling some of my friends were in med school and she just did an experiment with her friends. She's like, hey, <laughs> let's track to see at what point does my blood alcohol volume needs to be to slow this down to a stop. <laughs> That's funny. So like you said, it really doesn't affect your everyday vision. It's just rapid eye movement that's happening. And you're yes. not noticing nothing's different in terms of how you focus or anything. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just don't know. This is good to know. Are there any accommodations that come out of that, either through low vision? Well, I think that's pretty much what it really comes down to. You know, having this conversation with you, we're far apart, but I'm staring at a... 27 inch screen that's zoomed in (laughs) so I can see everything with great clarity. There's other things that I do in my office um, where I remove lights. Fluorescent lights give me headaches. Also, I avoid bright settings. It causes eye Mm -hmm. fatigue. I joke with my boss uh, from time to time. I remember there was a conference down in Cancun and I'm sure you would love like, oh, I'm going to Cancun. Great. And I just looked at her, I was like, is this like a joke? You want to send the albino down to Cancun and see how long it takes till he gets burnt? So, of course, I made sure I had a lot of like clothing that had SPF factors in it, mm-hmm. just small different things. And a lot of things that I just don't even notice anymore because it's just the way I do things. And I think that's mm-hmm. what a lot of people with different disabilities learn to do over the years. It's like, this is just the way I do it. Right. Yeah. And it may be different for someone else. 
you know, the way I do getting the way I get dressed may be different from the way someone else gets dressed or, you know, whatever it is. So we all have our own quirks and perks that allow us to thrive and just do what we need to do to be successful and continue on with our day. Exactly. I, I have a lot of friends who don't have visual impairments who are designers and they have seen the way that I have my computer screen set up and on a <laughs> monitor arm and like, oh my God, that is so great. You have good posture that way. I'm like, well, you can do it too. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, a, it's that old saying in the community of adapt for one and extend to many. Sure. Definitely. And so with the low vision, what is your preferential font height and width and spacing? I was I was interviewing someone who had low vision just a few episodes ago and it just like totally was so eye-opening thinking about different lightings and going from light to dark and natural versus artificial light. So what how does that affect you if you want to speak more to that? So again, it's just, I try to reduce the light as much as possible. Even on my screen, I have inverted colors. So I read white text on a black background, typically. Okay. You know, when Apple and Google Chrome came out with dark mode, I was super excited. Oh, same. <laughs> I love dark mode, everything. Exactly. So for me, it was a huge benefit that just made life so much easier. Even... You know, I think one of the advantages I had when I went through my undergrad is I received all my textbooks in PDF format. So I was Mm -hmm. carrying around big textbooks and I was able to manipulate while all my classmates were searching through their highlighted notes. I just (laughs) was using control F. (laughs) I I think my undergrad experience, you know, I finished back in 2006 was a lot easier than most other people back then. Now it's, you know, more common. Everyone's used to having e-textbooks and things like that. So that was a huge benefit for me. But even now, um, living in Boston and when I used to commute to and from work, I would have my, I would listen to books or papers with voiceover on. So even if it wasn't an audio book, I would just still listen to it while I'm walking to and from work. So trying to be you know, efficient and effective while doing my morning commute. That's great. The podcast, the listening to books, the control F, I mean, certainly had an upper leg during your undergraduate career, I'm sure being able to control F everything. What are some of other accommodations that either you have used or that you've advocated for at the companies that you've worked for or other places that you've worked with? That's a really good question. I think because of my exposure, every time I'm involved in anything, I think about universal accessibility. I think about having, you know, something as simple as a document or a PDF accessible to someone who uses a screen reader. I try to make sure every time we have an event that there's a sign language interpreter there and available. Mm -hmm. I'm super excited now that Google Hangouts has artificial intelligence that does live transcription. Yeah. Even though it's not great. Last time we checked it at my office. <laughs> it's getting better. My, yeah. But when my colleagues found out that it edits out swear words. <laughs> oh, does it? <laughs> like, well, that's not fair. Um, of course, that could have changed. Play um, nice, Google. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, there's a lot of different things that just comes to mind. And a lot of it I think of is just universal design. How can we design things on the front end better 
so that people don't require accommodations. You know, why do we need to have multi-story buildings or steps into a building? Why can't that just be part of the architecture plan right away? And some things just kind of go hand in hand. I think about why are we still using paper? It is 2020. (laughs) Not only save trees, but also just from an accessibility standpoint. Exactly. You know, two birds, one stone. We can save trees and we can just make things a lot more accessible for a a wider audience. So it kind of just reminds me of one of the things that really stood out to me when I got more involved in the global disability rights world was people aren't disabled. It is society and the boundaries that we put up as far as society that disables a person. So no one inherently is, you know, disabled. And that just stands out a lot to me. So what barriers are we creating for others? Oh, man, that's a great quote. People aren't disabled. It's the barrier that we create. Humans create inaccessibility. Well, even if you think about it, if you go to some countries in the global South, most people in the U.S. need their glasses to be able to function. Sure. If you are living in some parts of the global South where you can't afford glasses or cataract surgery, you are by default disabled. Sure. Now, having the privilege we have here in the U.S., that is the case, but so many instances like that happen around the world and even still here in the U.S., yeah, it's it's nice that we live in the United States, but also it's you have to think about others that aren't as fortunate. And I know there are so many companies out there now that are doing like a one-to-one. You buy one, they donate one. And those are fabulous business models as well. So always making sure that they're giving back to those who are less fortunate or don't have those services available to them. And I think that's one of the key things that I love about our culture is changing. We're becoming more, we, we're having more of a global mindset and thinking about others and really understanding our privilege. You know, I'm a Black guy with a disability who's talking about his own privilege and having the agency <laughs> to understand that, which a lot of people, you know, anticipate that I'm a person in need or I need mm-hmm. a helping hand and that realize I have the power or the ability to help someone else. Do people ever treat you as non-disabled? They're like, oh, they doubt that you have a disability just because you are colored differently. My family. <laughs> I think that's... Oh, okay. <laughs> my brother. Um, and I think that's the kind of great thing. Probably even in your family, no one really considers you have a disability. Sure. You know, even among my friend groups, I have a lot of friends. I'm friends with a lot of people with different diverse disabilities just some different things I've been involved over the years. And, you know, I was having a Zoom talk with one of my friends here who was a Paralympic swimmer who's missing part of her arm. And we were cracking jokes about her arm and she was cracking blind jokes. Like, how how long did it take you to realize I was missing an arm? Um, You know, in that community and even getting to the point where those who are close to you understand your disability really isn't a disability, I think Mm -hmm. is important. I think humor is a common theme and so many people with disabilities. I find that in all of my interviews, people kind of always just at the end of the day, they just go back to humor because that's what keeps them going. (laughs) Yeah, and it really, 
it reshapes the way you think about things. I, I think back about, I want to say it was probably three years ago now where I broke my leg and I had mm-hmm. to utilize a wheelchair. I coach a sport for blind and visually impaired athletes called goalball, where it's a very physical sport, play three on three, but in the gym over was all of our wheelchair basketball athletes. So you sure. have me, who's probably two weeks out of surgery, rolling in on a wheelchair and all the wheelchair <laughs> athletes like, oh, this is great. I'm like, just leave me alone. I don't want to stop right now. <laughs> Well, what was that life kind of though for you to experience a temporary disability that had you use a wheelchair? How did your lens shift? I think my lens didn't shift that much. I was more mindful of, I can't complain. Okay. (laughs) This is temporal. This will change. I'll be out of this wheelchair soon enough. And I think having an exposure and have a lot of friends who utilize wheelchairs, like this isn't that big of a deal. I still right. had to go through my own grieving process. Of, mm-hmm. I can't stand in a shower right now. Right. Yeah. You have to get a seat or something. That's what I use. So. Exactly. So luckily I had a lot of friends who utilize wheelchairs and all these other things. I was able to call upon them and some of them were able to share some of their equipment with me. I'm like, this is cool. This is great. I did feel guilty, you know, the first couple of nights in bed, like this sucks. Sure. Yeah. I think we all go through that sort of grieving process or doubting that you have something that's different than you, than what you would want to have. Exactly. I just think what was different was I had guilt related to it. Mm -hmm. So I just changed my perspective. I was, again, I was able to get over it right away and having that friend network, um, you know, was a huge support. Well, that's great. It's good to always to have that supportive system. And even thinking about other community groups that you're involved with, are there other places that you seek to build that community? Other, Either it's in the albino community or just in general? Well, circling back to a conversation that we were having before is... Well, it's even something that my current organization, the Disability Rights Fund, works on a lot it's really focusing on intersectionality. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I love our executive director, Diana Samarison. She calls out the women's rights movement for not being accessible when they ha- are having meetings. Heck um, yeah. Women. You know, I think about not too long ago in Indonesia, the women's rights movement there was fighting for women's rights over um, abortion. And they gave in. It's like, well, you know, women with disabilities, their parents should choose. And they came to that conclusion because there was no women with disabilities at the table. Wow. <laughs> so it's, there's so many diverse communities out there and it's mm-hmm. how can we make sure it's inclusive of everyone and diverse? It's really important to make sure all movements are diverse. And even now when I'm going to meetings and talking about disabilities, I notice right away that a lot of times it's led by white men, able-bodied white men, or mm-hmm. even a lot of times in the disability community, it's a hierarchy. A lot of times it's led by either those in wheelchairs or those who are blind. And we oh, also yeah. have many people with psychosocial disabilities or that many people who are deaf leading outside of their own unique communities to represent the community as a whole. So it's 
so much more needs to happen and to grow mm-hmm. and to change. So I'm always cognizant and thinking about that and trying to figure out how we can get people together. Yeah, that disability hierarchy is still so true. And I don't know if you watched the Netflix movie Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution recently, but it talks about the disability hierarchy and historically all the polios have always been on top. And then at the bottom, you have people who are generally nonverbal or extremely uh, physically, mentally disabled in any sense. So how do you you see yourself in that hierarchy or do you even identify as being in that hierarchy? So I think that's where I kind of have the privilege. So, you know, Judy Human, I love her to death. Me and her serve on a board together. Um, oh, it was neat. featured in that show. But, you know, she's the archetype of how people wheelchairs were leading the disability movement for such a long time and got us to where we are. But then if you look in a lot of laws, a lot of it changed, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, where a lot of people who are blind were leading the disability movement, you know, from the work of the National Federation of the Blind, the American Foundation for the Blind. And to be quite honest, like I benefit from it. A lot of the interpretations of the new laws are inclusive of those who are blind and how to accommodate for them. While uh, some of the older laws, which I'm dealing with right now, with the Fair Housing Act, I'm buying a house that's being built currently in the community, and I'm asking oh, for cool. a lot of different accommodations to be included in the house. And a lot of the text is written like, oh, grab bars or having something right. like this height, which is helpful for people in a wheelchair. But it's like, can I get dimmable lights that are LEDs? <laughs> That would be a huge help for me or, you know, just small things like that. Um, Even things I still have learned and talked to my friends about of having countertops are just all one solid color. So I can spot something on the countertop right away Mm. because I live in Boston and space is luxury, if you will. So a lot of times people have, if they do have a washer and dryer, they're stacked. I cannot see what's on the top machine. I think is the same issue for a lot of people who have mobility issues as well, but finding devices of like, oh, this dryer I can control from a phone via Wi-Fi. Oh, neat. So I'm still learning, I'm still growing, but I see my position as like, I've been very privileged with the new laws because it really does encompass and care about those who are blind. While some of the older laws in the books, like the Fair Housing Act, was like, is this applicable for me? Right. Yeah, I think a lot of ADA does speak to just wheelchairs specifically. And it's interesting to hear those accommodations that you're asking for in your house. So I'm thinking about dimmable lights. That's something that you're interested in. Countertops that are of a certain color. What other things? Is it like high contrast, different paint colors? Fewer windows. I don't. I don't know. What is it that you're looking for? There's a lot of different things, and even one of the things in the back in my head, I'm like, well, I don't need this, but this might be a nice to have feature. Well, tell me your ideal environment. What's your ideal built environment for your house? What would be a perfect dream house for you, Philip? A perfect dream house. Is... <laughs> Describe it to me. <laughs> Maybe windows that were smart windows that I can dim and control the amount of light that came in from the windows. Because we all love windows. Mm -hmm. I just don't like the sun. (laughs) So that's a big difference. You know, I often host a lot of my friends who have disabilities. So I always think about like, can they use my restroom? Can they enter my Mm -hmm. house? 
unfortunately couldn't afford to have anything at ground level, but making sure instead of having the steps come in from the side, the steps are coming directly into the house so a ramp can be installed so my friends can come visit me. But thinking about myself, there's some nice haves. I saw that one company made a faucet that connects with um, Siri and you can say pour one cup of water or pour two ounces of water and that would come out the faucet of like, I don't need it, but that is nice. And if I can afford it, I'll have it. (laughs) Technology is so cool these days. I didn't even know. I don't have anything smart in my house. So I need to get on that. (laughs) You're a tech person though. I know. That's so funny too. It's so funny. Like I work in technology and I don't own a single... The only thing that's smart in my house is my cell phone and my computer. I don't have any Alexas, none of that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you just want to turn off when you're done thinking about work. Yeah. It's so funny. I go over to my brother's house and it's like all decked out. And like there's like five Alexas in his one bedroom condo. And he has like different colored lights and he names every light is a different color or every light is a different name. And he goes, Alexa, turn on Alfred. And it, <laughs> it's so funny. And then it'll turn on Alfred and it'll be like, set Alfred to sunset mode. And it'll like dim it to like this like red, hued, colored light. He has different colored lights in his house. I'm like, that's that's a lot. <laughs> well, some of those are even really helpful. Um, I think about some of my friends who are completely blind. And just for mm-hmm. safety issues, a lot of times they don't know if the light is on and off. So one of my friends back, I'm originally from Milwaukee, has their front porch and back porch light to just turn on at sunset and turn off at sunrise. So they always have some type of light around the house. But, you know, luckily we live in a day and age where everything is just changing so quickly, so fast. I think about even my wife, she has a couple of things that she loves that were incorporated into the house as well. And it's kind of low tech, but it's the temperature of the lights. You know, mm-hmm. some lights are more yellow and some are more blue. You know, she has albinism too, surprisingly, but that's something that is really important to her. Then, you know, I think another small one that a lot of people don't think about is we're making sure that our stove has front controls because mm-hmm. So many times when I'm cooking on a gas stove, I have to lean over <laughs> the burners to see like, okay. To see it, right. Which just isn't safe. So just small things. We went through a list um, and with our purchase and sell agreement, we actually did a Fair Housing Act rider so that our builder mm-hmm. isn't charging us a premium to get some of these features. They're just huh. charging us the difference in costs. So they had certain thermostats already that they chose. Mm-hmm. And instead of pay, charging me the full, you know, 250 bucks for a Nest thermostat, they're just going to charge me the difference, which I think oh, is cool. fair. So what is the spare housing writer that you got? Is that something that you can, where do you find that? So I'm privileged because I have a lot of friends who <laughs> are lawyers. With okay. <laughs> Oh, nice. That's, so, a, that's key. Well, it's one of those things in the blind community. It's There's too many blind lawyers. It's one of the biggest jokes. <laughs> um, we all know Daredevil. And I think part of the reason why the blind superhero is a lawyer is because there are way too many blind lawyers out there. It's one of those careers mm-hmm. that many people have paved the path. And it's a good career. It pays well. So 
I called my friend who has his own law firm, like, hey, I want to do this. He's like, sure, I'll make a contract for you and you can toss it into your purchase and sell agreement. I'm like, perfect. So it's as simple as getting a lawyer and spinning up a contract so that the builder that you have doesn't charge you an insane amount of money just to get housing accommodations. Exactly. Because, you know, That's I, keep so hearing cool. that. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> I keep hearing there's so many rich people with disabilities out there. I haven't met many of them yet. So I, I don't know any. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to know some. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, I didn't think about it, I didn't know about it. But since we, I moved from the Midwest, which is kind of like Atlanta, where it's affordable housing, to sure. New England, where affordable. It's like, oh, this one bedroom condo will cost you half a million. I'm like, well, I'm spending this much money. I'm going to make sure some of my needs are addressed right away. Oh, of course. That's a must have. Definitely. Well, interesting. This is so nice to hear just kind of looking through your lens and what are those accommodations that you ask for in just your own built environment space. And thinking about the workplace, do you do you typically work from home or do you go to an office? 50-50. Okay. During non-COVID, obviously. <laughs> yes, um, Non-COVID, 50-50. So I think I have one of the greatest jobs in the world. I'm a fundraiser. So I get to talk about amazing activities that a lot of different organizations are taking on and sh- preach the gospel, share the gospel with everyone about what's happening. And I think it kind of feeds off of my Midwest personality. You know, I have two modes. I can do either happy hour or coffee in the morning. (laughs) Oh, there we go. (laughs) I like it. Yeah, it works out very well. You know, we're the home of Miller back home and a big part of the Mm -hmm. third wave um, coffee movement as well. So I'm typically out there talking with people, um, sharing what's happening, learning more, presenting. So going into the office doesn't make sense most of the time. Mm-hmm. But again, there are some of the non-fun things I have to do where I still have to go into the office and do paperwork and write sure. plans and hear about what's happening in the world. Yeah, and speak to the work that you do because it does pair closely with just disabilities in general. So yeah, the more about the Disability Rights Fund, it's an amazing fund that was the brainchild of Diana Samarison, who is the founding executive director. It is the first global fund that really brought together disability advocates as well as bilateral partners and major funders. So part of our grant making committee, we have representatives from the, from some of the largest foundations and governments um, from Australia government and the British government right alongside with the Ford Foundation, Open Society, Wellspring, and they're making decisions of how and who we're funding right alongside a lot of great advocates with disabilities who are from the global South and South America, Africa, Pacific Island region, and all their voices are equal, which I think is huge. I'm going to say it that, you know, I think it's really cool that some of our donors, representatives, are individuals with disabilities themselves. So that is a huge benefit. And I got to keep reminding myself that they're not always separate. (laughs) can be two hats on one person. So, you know, we are a participatory grant maker, which um, speaks to the way I was talking about with our um, grant making committee, where 
those with disabilities are deciding where the money is going to. I think too often in our society, we conflate wealth with wisdom. Just because someone has made a lot of money from X doesn't mean they're expert in Y. (laughs) So really letting go of the money and letting those who need the resources to decide what is the best way to spend. There's been so many amazing stories about, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates, who have some of the best intentions, but didn't know what was actually happening on the ground. Um, I think we all heard the mosquito net story of yeah. mm-hmm. giving this one community mosquito nets to help stop malaria, but they were starving. So the mosquito nets became fishing nets. If yep. they would have involved the people there on the ground and actually talk about it, they could have had a sustainable idea, which kind of shifted a lot of their um, grant making now is... They involve the community and make sure the community is invested. So just part of the idea of when an NGO needs to pull out or their work is done there, the community takes on the work and the work can continue. And where can people learn more about the Disability Rights Fund? Good question. Um, They can go to disabilityrightsfund.org. Disability is singular, rights is plural, and fund is singular. So they can go there. They can learn more about our grantees, what we're doing, what we're all about. Another great resource is going directly to the UN. Part of our driving document is the Convention for the Rights of People with Disabilities and the CRPD, which was the first international treaty for those with disabilities. You know, a lot of countries ratified it. The U.S. wasn't one of them, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But it's a good standing document to really understand uh, what I mentioned earlier about it's not really a person who is disabled, it's society that disables individuals. Yeah. And my favorite statement, nothing for us without us, which was a driving part of the movement. Because in addition to being one of the first treaties to address disabilities, it was one of the first treaties drafted with civil society. So in addition to all these politicians who are often detached from what's happening, there were a lot of advocates of people with disabilities and people with disabilities drafting this document together. Hmm. So DRF is also helping to push new legislation forward? No. No. (laughs) Our agency, the Disability Rights Advocacy Fund, which is a 501c4, is. So we do have another agency... um, because the legal framework in the United States, you know, mm-hmm. 501c3s cannot engage in lobbying activities. That's what I thought. Okay. But our disability rights advocacy fund can. So, mm-hmm. and we don't really, we don't do it directly. We do it by equipping the uh, individuals on the ground to fight for their rights and advocate for their rights and challenge their governments to get legislation passed or to actually uphold the laws that are currently on the books. So we see that by taking some of our grantees to Geneva to present reports about what's actually happening on the ground, which may contradict what the government is saying. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we see so many great stories of our grantees of really just calling out the politicians because they now have the financial resources to go on the radio, to make ads, to bring people together, to engage in all these activities so it's amazing. It really was a change for me because I used to be part of a lot of the grassroots organizations. <laughs> I worked with, uh, most recently, 
before I came to Disability Rights Fund for Broadscope Disability Services, where we were um, advocating for workplace training and we were providing respite care and helping with independent living. At the Disability Rights Fund, we're not really doing any of it. It's our grantees. Sure. We're just ensuring that they are resourced and they have the training needed to advocate, advocate for their rights and they're given a platform as well. So, you know, recognizing the power that they, that they do have is a huge, is, I want to say huge, it's really important to us as an organization. Yeah, and you guys do a ton of amazing work. I've definitely read up on it on your website. So it's exciting to be a partner and just there with you alongside. And I know an initiative that you guys are also focusing on coming up is June 13th, June 14th. And that's World Albinism Awareness Day. Yes. Um, so pretty soon we're looking at June, June 13th, which is Global Albinism Awareness Day, which was a launch from the Convention for the Rights of People with Disabilities. It's a global celebration. We have worked with some great leaders to bring people together. Um, the UN's independent expert on the enjoyment of people of albinism, IK, myself, um, Antoine from the pilot program for a global albinism alliance. We're doing a, we're trying to put together a celebration, if you will, with um, looking at a lot of musical talent from all over the world to really share their talents. And after that, to really dive into some conversations to talk about what's happening on the ground, um, to raise their voices. There's been a lot of changes in the last, you know, 15, 20 years. If you go back 20 years in time, there was maybe 10 organizations in the world that really focused on albinism specifically. Um, now we're looking at 200. Um, wow, huge growth. Yeah, and a lot of it is happening in some of these countries in the global south. You know, we're seeing organizations pop up in Tanzania, in Haiti, in Indonesia, and really addressing the needs of the people there. There's different campaigns that happen in different places. So, for instance, in Rwanda that I just came back from, they're trying to ensure that people with albinism can receive sunblock as part of um, basic medical care. You know, the, one of the funny things that happened... Seems like, like a basic need. True. Um, and one of the advocates over there, he looked at me, he's like, how did you guys get that um, to happen in the U.S.? I'm like, I wish. <laughs> I'm like, that would be a major step in the right direction. So yeah. I say that to say, I think even us here in the U.S., we have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters with disabilities all over the world. They're doing a lot of things that the U.S. is just falling behind in. But it's really interesting trying to bring together this global perspective because albinism is seen so differently around the world and there's a lot of history behind it. Um, you know, we were talking before about indigenous people in yeah. albinism. I think of a lot of different stories, um, not just here in the U.S., but um, like in Fiji, um, one of my favorite stories is right around the turn of the 19th century, a tribe, they weren't able to hold their territory unless they actually had a person with albinism in a powerful political position. You know, mm -hmm. even if you look down in the Panama region, I love um, one of the terms that they use down there is children of the moon. 
because a lot of these kids <laughs> come out during the day. In the San Blas region down there, it's really one of the highest instances of albinism throughout the world. It's like one in every 125 or so, while in the rest of the world, it's usually about one in every 20,000. So it's a really high instance mm. down there um, mm. to some of the unfortunate things that we see happening in Tanzania. Yeah. And can you speak to more of the indigenous? I think we were talking a little bit earlier about being hunted. Um, that's an issue with albinism. Have you heard about other awareness aspects of that? Yes. And that's the unfortunate part. So I know more about Tanzania, but it definitely happens in other areas in that region, like in the Congo and um, near some other border countries. But unfortunately, there's a lot of myths and stereotypes related to albinism in that area. There's ideas that is related to witchcraft or it's a way of punishing a family. There's a lot of challenges of paternity where it's like, oh, that can't be my child. But even goes as far as to some of the witch doctors um, make promises to the community and it's well receptive and believed that the body parts of a person with albinism can be used to make potions. So people wow. in that region are literally hunted down and killed and their limbs are chopped off, including children. I know of stories of kids as young as four, three, five, who have had their arms or legs amputated and are living in hiding. A lot of times now, when you look in that region, a lot of those children are living in boarding schools for the blind. That way they have some level of safety. So, you know, with some of the great stories, like one of my good friends um, here in the U.S. who is Native American, his tribe's witch doctor has albinism because there's a lot of great stories in his tribe related to that. Then you have some of these smaller communities in Tanzania where, you know, the ideology behind albinism can lead to someone's death, if you will. Jeez. Yeah, a whole lot that we are blind to. Uh, and I, I mean that literally, just we're not focusing on that. And we're in our bubble of the United States thinking that we're protected and nothing else is happening around the world. And it's uh, there's people being hunted just for the way that they look, thinking that it will cure other people. And that's really, really sad to hear that, especially in the disability community we already have so much stigma and stereotypes around us and having to continue to overcome those barriers and those challenges just because someone looks different. And I think that's one of the hardest things that I can't even get my head around or wrap my ideas like what can be the best way to handle this because you have people in hiding because they are being hunted, but at the same time being excluded from the community is just adding to the stigma. So it's truly a lose-lose scenario over there. Mm -hmm. So on June 13th, what else should we expect to hear? Um, Can you give us a little taste of what we're going to hear from everyone? Is it just more just a celebration or will there be other discussions just talking about albinism? So the main part will be a celebration. And afterwards, we'll have discussions um, that will be in several different languages. Portuguese, French, English. But to me, the part that just really highlights to me is we're having some amazing performers like Connie Chu, 
who's from Hong Kong, who's a jazz singer, who was a model back in the late 80s and um, 90s and 2000s. We're having Yellow Man, who is a reggaeton singer from Jamaica. One of my favorite people, Marlena Barber. She was, she's amazing. Um, she's out in California and she's well known for being a cabaret singer to even presentations by one of my favorite people, Rick Gadotti, who started Positive Exposure. He is an amazing photographer who has photographed a lot of different people who has an amazing story of how he was tired of being told of who is beautiful and went off in his own direction to really capture as an artist the beauty behind different people with rare conditions. I think we all seen those unfortunate textbooks of, oh, this is what this fill-in-the-blank condition is which is a lot different than, you know, knowing and seeing people who are diverse and having amazing lives. So his work is absolutely amazing. So that's going to be highlighted as well. Even bringing in a few people um, who are now well-known models um, throughout the world. There's been some really amazing campaigns, um, even in New York City, um, on the billboards, um, DeAndre Forrest, um, Sean Ross, both for African-American models who have done some major campaigns. And it's going to be absolutely amazing. Uh, People can find out more information by going to albinismday.com. They can directly reach out to me at the Disability Rights Fund. My email is pmason at disabilityrightsfund.org. Be happy to share more information. We are kind of iterating very quickly, um, you being in the computer science world, I'm sure you understand Agile. So we're just iterating every day because this was not planned to be this way. Yeah, it was supposed to be in person, right? Exactly. We're looking to have celebrations at the Conference of State Parties at the UN in New York. And that was canceled. Mm -hmm. So this is a way that we feel as we can be more inclusive because we can have more people um, involved from all over the world and people who don't have the privilege to access the UN or make it to New York. Major impact for sure. And the reach. Well, I, I'm, I'll be interesting to hear how many people actually register and attend the webinar. I hope you get amazing numbers from it because it will be virtual. So that's so exciting. Yes. Hope well, everyone cool. isn't fully um, fatigued out from Zoom and hang I know, right? <laughs> it's Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. <laughs> Video chat, chat, all this here and there. <laughs> Like enough zooms. <laughs> and also, like, do I need to start shaving again? <laughs> <laughs> I need to take a shower and put on real clothes. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, That's it, funny. It's uh, my wife. She was just telling me the other day. She's like, I'm so happy. I haven't worn makeup in the last two months. I'm like, That's nice. I bet her skin is just loving it. Exactly. And you're, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you're, you look beautiful either way. So. So you still love the same. Of, um, <laughs> at a quarantine with better skin and probably an extra 15 pounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we're all looking forward to seeing how everyone changes when they come out. It'll be interesting to go back into the office and see people again. Um, one last thing. Are there any uh, misconceptions, stereotypes, slurs, anything of people with albinism that you face particularly or just anything in the community? 
I think there's so many. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> well, some are good and some are bad. Okay, okay. Like there is some stereotypes within the blind community here in the U.S. That a lot of people with albinism are overachievers. I see it in my friend group. You know, I one of my friends she works for the, the number two law firm based off of assets in the U.S. Another one has his own law firm. Another is in accounting at John Deere. My wife works for the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. But on the other end, you know, there are some unfortunate conditions that are related to albinism. One is Hermansky-Kudlak syndrome, which is more or less characterized as a blood platelet disorder, which a lot of times people would assume that a person with albinism may have this bleeding disease associated with it, which is also mm-hmm. like has Crohn's and other gastral issues related to it. I think one of the other biggest misconceptions is the idea that everyone with albinism has red eyes. I'm still waiting to meet this rare red-eyed albino, <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> um, but I think also some of the misconceptions just comes from ignorance. Yeah. I'll share this one story with you. One of my good friends, um, before he started his own boutique law firm, he was a public defender down in Jefferson City, Missouri. And he went to go visit one of his clients at the jail. And the guy said, thank God I got the white guy. I was really worried I was going to get the guy who sniffs paper. What? Yeah, exactly. And he's thinking back and says, like, one of my colleagues sniffs paper. He's like, okay, whatever. He's happy. I know why. I know. He sits in. He gets his papers out. And he brings the papers to his face to read. <laughs> <laughs> in the back of his head, he's thinking, oh, shit, I am the paper sniffer. Oh, no. <laughs> so I think that happens with a lot of different disabilities is people yeah. just don't know. So they make assumptions that just don't add up. Sure. So obviously, there's a lot of curiosity. And I know a lot of people is like, just ask, just ask, just ask. And I think that's okay for the most part, but also think about just Google. Start there. Yeah, Google. <laughs> totally. 100%. Because, yeah, I've heard You can really... literally Google, why is this person super white? And you will probably bring up albinism. I mean, you can type in anything in Google and it will populate what you're looking for. Exactly. So I think just start there and to get a better understanding but, you know, also I say that from a position of privilege, I have a lot of friends with different disabilities. I can pretty much ask them anything and everything. And sometimes the conversations go way too far left field. <laughs> and sometimes it's things I've never thought about. You know, I was talking to one of my friends. She was a valedictorian at Gallaudet University. And she was just sharing more to me about the dating culture amongst the deaf and you know, different things like that. And it's like, this is really interesting and things yeah. I would have never thought about. Right. That's a whole other topic of discussion is just dating with a disability is very different. It can be very challenging for some people, less for others, just depending on your, your, I guess, your disability and how impacted you are. But I think it's also your personality and how you carry yourself is also how you put your best foot forward. I was thinking about some of my friends. Uh, one of my friends, he's in DC. He's blind and has a guide dog. He's like, heck yeah, make sure my guide dog is in every picture because women love dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
um, perfect. <laughs> then I have another friend here in Boston, um, and she utilizes a wheelchair. She's like, yeah, I keep it out. And I just show up on the first date, and I have a mentioning that I have a disability and see what the reactions are. <laughs> so, oh, that's clutch. <laughs> I love that. I should try that out. Only post pictures of my chest up or neck up <laughs> and then see what happens. I think that can be its own blog within itself. Um, <laughs> I actually watched this video yesterday of this woman who is like 6'3", and then she was wearing six-inch heels. And she was going on a bunch of blind dates. So she's sitting at this cafe, and she's 6'3", and she's wearing stiletto heels that are an additional four inches. And so she's the first person to show up at the cafe. and. So she's waiting for the blind date to show up. And so the guy approaches her and is like, oh, are you Amanda? And she says yes and stands up. And she is six four, six five, towering over every single one of the guys that shows up. And they're just like, wow, you're super tall. I had no idea. And every single date ended up just leaving her just like, oh, would you like something to drink? And they would go inside, get a drink, and then would just disappear and not come back. And I'm like, that's... It uh, would just be a, a fascinating story and a blog to write. <laughs> I think just how people perceive you on social media, right? Because you can portray yourself in one way, but then in reality, you can be someone that's totally different. Well, I think the other thing that is... I'm not sure if it's interesting, but... I think it's one of the things that a lot of people with different disabilities talk about is there's a lot of fetishisms that go along with disability, especially with the albinism world. Like I know so many people who have fetishes of women with albinism. So actually I started a group on Facebook nearly 10 years ago that has about 6,500 people with albinism on it. And I'm constantly having to block or weed out people who are coming there just to meet women with albinism. Oh, weird. Yeah, it's way weird. That's interesting. Okay, so I guess that's that's their what they're attracted to. Interesting. Okay. I mean, people are going <laughs> to like what they like. You know, people are going to like what they like. But also it's what level of degree of creepiness is it, right? You know, is it you're only hunting out people with disabilities in a very particular type I wonder what else more is there. But <laughs> in any case, how else do you feel that albinism is portrayed in the media and, and social world and television, modeling, fashion, all that? It's getting better since I was a kid. I think back when I was probably in high school, there's a couple of major films. I'm sure you've seen The Da Vinci Code yep. and Me, Myself, and Irene. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, mm-hmm. the albino assassin. <laughs> that will be a great job for a person with a visually impaired hunting down someone and killing them. So for a lot of years, there was that negative stereotype of the evil albino. We've seen it mm. in The Matrix uh, and happens in film left and right. And now I just get super stoked where I just see a person with albinism and there's no explanation, no justification, but just there being a normal person. Oh, that's nice. You know, Target had some ads recently and I took screenshots. I'm like, oh my God, there was a person with albinism. And, you know, again, no justification. (laughs) And, you know, I'm okay with laughing at myself. There was an episode of The Family Guy that I remember 
where it was a random blizzard and Peter was like, thank God the weird albino didn't come out. Then in the snow, you just see these two red eyes open. I was like, I'm right here. (laughs) (laughs) Friends uh, being from Milwaukee, I'm like, yeah, I don't go on the snow. Everyone's going to lose me. (laughs) (laughs) So I love it. (laughs) You got to be able to joke about things. I'm glad we have some major advocates out there. One of my favorite musicians is Brother Ali, um, who's an amazing rapper who needs more attention in all these different roles and opportunities that are increased for people with disabilities. The one thing that I just hope that happens more often in mainstream is that people with disabilities are the ones who are getting the roles for people with disabilities. Totally. If you're casting someone in a wheelchair, how about you actually cast someone in a wheelchair? Who uses a wheelchair <laughs> every day. <laughs> exactly. So um, yeah. some in some places and directors are they're making a, a certain effort of casting more people who are deaf, who are blind, who do have uh, mobility impairments. And I just want to see that trend to keep growing so we can have more representation of who we are in pop culture. I would say that's totally true because even looking at representation of people who use wheelchairs and in mainstream media, it is either portrayed as a tragedy story or it's, oh, you're such an inspiration and a light to us all. And it's, what about just... inspiration, sorry. (laughs) What about just being a normal person who uses a wheelchair and they have their challenges and they're able to overcome them and they're just hanging out just like all the other characters. Exactly. Why can't we just be portrayed as who we are? (laughs) Well, I think one of the cool things that are happening because we are seeing more wheelchairs out there and more assistive assistive technology devices, people are no longer hiding um, their assistive Mm -hmm. technology devices now. It can be something that's cool and amazing. I remember seeing some really cool decorated uh, prosthetic arms and legs. You know, when I first saw the picture of you online, I saw your wheelchair. I'm like, that's a cool one. Thanks. Yeah. People tell me I look, I I usually get like, hey, Miss X-Men. And I'm like, (laughs) well, a miss or a man. (laughs) I don't know what you're going after. But it's funny because I'll actually respond to it (laughs) because I know they're talking about me. Well, yours is one of the more unique ones. I guess I'm also yeah. used to seeing more um, sport wheelchairs from watching wheelchair basketball. Mm-hmm. So I was like, when I see yours, like, that's too expensive to get damaged. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't. So my wheelchair, in comparison to a lot of other wheelchairs, my wheelchair was $13,000. And I was really fortunate to have my company fundraise for it and pay for it, um, along with two other wheelchairs that we bought when I first joined the company. So it was really awesome. But if we think about other wheelchairs, some of them are fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. So thirteen is on the way low side. <laughs> Damn near bargain. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it looks cool. No, that's cool, and I, I think that's the other thing that needs to be discussed is the cost of some of these devices. That a they don't need to be as expensive as they are, mm-hmm. but b mm-hmm. insurance companies need to cover more of these devices. You know, it's unfortunate. I even think about because of my sunglasses needing to wrap around, the cheapest pair of sunglasses I've been able to find with my prescription in it has been $700. Yikes. And, you know, granted, it's still cheap compared to a $15, 
$1,000 yeah. wheelchair. But the same rate, as I mentioned earlier, I'm still trying to find all these rich people with disabilities so they can, you know, help me out. Help me out. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. <laughs> yeah, I would say that it was interesting that you say about the wheelchairs being expensive and just other medical, durable medical equipment. So the type of wheelchair that I had, actually, they got denied for through insurance because it was considered an all-terrain vehicle. And FDA regulation <laughs> states that, you know, wheelchairs are only meant to be used inside your house. And so they considered a wheelchair with four-wheel drive that that's, you know, that's too too advanced for someone with a disability to be able to go outside and God forbid they want to go on grass and dirt and rocks in the park. <laughs> well, even at the same rate, it's like, how about I just pay the difference? You tell me what's approved. Yeah. And I'm, if I want the Cadillac mm. instead of the Camry, I'll pay the Cadillac <laughs> difference in price. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd be down for that too. And that's why I think we need to get to in society is like, a lot of us are working. We have disposable income. We are able to contribute towards our own assistive technology. Let us just pay the gap in difference of cost where I'm mm-hmm. not having something's going to break in a year or two years or really you know, make my life more difficult, but I'm willing to put money towards this. But at that same rate, sure. you know, I think about you can easily get a car loan to buy a car for $15,000. How many banks are making products and loans, you know, geared towards people with disabilities? Why can't I just go to Chase and like, hey, I need this wheelchair for 25 grand. I want five years, 0.1% interest That'd rate. That'd be awesome. A loan on your wheelchair? <laughs> Yeah, I know. So the the second wheelchair that I bought to have like as a backup, because obviously these are electric and the battery only lasts so many hours and I'm super active. So I, I needed to have two wheelchairs so that when one dies, I can still go out and be mobile through the night. And that one actually, I could do payment plans, which was really nice. So I did it through Scoot Around. So I, that was the first time I've ever seen a payment plan for durable medical equipment. So it was really nice to have. Well, so I've been I'm paying shocked. that off for two years. <laughs> yeah. Well, creating opportunities like that, I think That's is rare. really important. Yeah. It's rare. And it's something that major banks should get behind. They are making mm-hmm. sure, you know, that their apps are accessible so people can still bank with them. Now, how about we make sure that there's some products out there? For instance, you know, with my mortgage that I'm, getting through Chase, I asked my bankers like, hey, can we put like a 20, 30 grand cushion in there so I can get some devices in my house? Mm. You can pay for that out of pocket. Sorry, we can't do that. Wow. So surprising. It's unfortunately, uh, it's unfortunate, unfortunate. but you know, unfortunately in our society in the U.S., we are so reactive. So until there's legislation or someone sues, why can't companies be proactive and create these opportunities and actually listen to the people that they're trying to have as loyal customers? That's the thing with being someone having a disability and living in the United States is it is so reactive as there's no real enforcement other than the people on the ground asking for change. And usually an injury happens or some discrimination and they sue. And that's, that's the only way things actually get changed. And people are tired of suing. I'm so <laughs> tired of suing. I ended up just doing mediation for everything because it's it's a lot less expensive and it's much quicker. But 
I mean, I don't make any money off of it. <laughs> and I think that's what people think. It's like, oh, you'll be taken care of. You can sue. It's like, well, first off, you have to go through all the legal loopholes. Then it's you like have to... five years. <laughs> Minimum. It's so long. And you're down yeah. in Atlanta. And Atlanta's a lot more friendly mm-hmm. than, you know, other places in the South. Yeah, I, it's getting there. I'm helping a lot, pushing the, uh, the city in, in a positive direction for accessibility. The local government knows me very well. <laughs> <laughs> that's important. Yes. That's so, true. No, like I said, I've seen so much of what you have done and I appreciate, you know, the force Thank that you, you are and that you're speaking out and all that fun things. If I'm, when I make it down to Atlanta. Yeah, let's come, come on out. We'll have a good time. You. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I'm, I'm totally down for it. There's a local bar that I go to all the time. Uh, they're really cool. So just down the block. Yeah. Thank you so much, Philip. I really appreciate your time and just sharing and chatting about just disability and equities and discriminatory slurs and all kinds of things regarding albinism and just disabilities in general. So it's a, such a pleasure. Oh, this was a great conversation. Thanks. Um, if you ever need anything, you know how to get hold of me. Sounds great. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you, friends, for listening. Please rate and follow this podcast or text Carden at 470-588-1215 with comments and suggestions. Tune in next week for another disability topic.